I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week, Brazil's controversial president is in town to meet with President Trump. Brazil does have a great deal to offer the U.S., and the same is true the other way around. They'll discuss, among many other issues, trade. Plus, chaos with Brexit continues. We voted to leave the European Union, and we're supposed to leave on March the 29th, but there is going to be a delay. What's the EU saying, and how is this uncertainty affecting trade? And... France is pressing ahead with these plans to tax digital giants despite the failure to secure an agreement at a European level on this issue. France's proposed tax on digital companies has U.S. officials highly concerned. We'll discuss all of that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Brazil's controversial right-wing president, um, Bolsonaro, is visiting Washington this week and there's a bunch of trade issues on the table. Scott, can you tell us what's going on with this guy? Well, sure. Look, uh, uh, this is a very interesting politician when you step back from it. He is he has been a politician for a long time, was an elected, local elected official, and then a member of the Brazilian Congress, what their House of Representatives, basically. Um, what's interesting about him is that Brazilian politics since the end of military dictatorship have mostly taken place on uh, sort of center left to left uh, parties. And right-wing parties were for a long time discredited because of their association with the military. So most of the political uh, in enthusiasm and many elections were contested from left, center, center left or leftist parties. Now, what that led to was some economic policies that tended to favor, you know, basically what we call state capitalism. Back in the 50s and 60s, it was more articulated as import substitution industrialization. Uh, it was a common development economy, development economics platform. Basically, you allowed raw materials to come in fairly cheaply, but you put high tariffs on on finished manufactured goods to incentivize companies to basically skip the tariff wall, build plants in your country, and essentially industrialize uh, in that manner. So Volkswagen, for instance, was still the leading uh, car producer in Brazil. Cars are made in Brazil for Brazilians. Uh, same with the chemical industry. Lots of global industries uh, followed that uh, the, the, those those restrictions and built plants behind the tariff walls. Now that's there's still some overhang from that because unlike uh, some uh, economies in in the Western Hemisphere, Mexico being the principal beneficiary of trade liberalization, but also Chile and and Colombia, there are other bright spots in in countries which adopted more open markets and have benefited from them. Brazil re remained committed to those policies for a long time. So what you have is an economy that is, it's an agriculture powerhouse just because of their of their factor endowments, just the natural uh, productivity of the land and the massive, it's a massive, massive country. Um, it's also They've also got some very high-tech operations going on. They're a leader in, in civil aviation, for instance. Well, and also Google and Apple and all the major U.S. tech companies companies are in Rio and, and in yes. and Sao Paulo. And, you know, I've been to Brazil. My, I have cousins in Brazil. Brazil has been really suffering 
the last few years. They had yeah. hyperinflation. I mean, you mentioned Volkswagen. My one of my cousins is the head of a major. He's the managing editor of a major magazine there, and drives a Volkswagen Jetta. And guess how much that Jetta costs? Oh, you know, it's unbelievable. It's like he drives a ninety thousand yeah, dollar Volkswagen he, Jetta. He'd be driving know? something far more prestigious. Yeah, here I mean, in the US so so he's paying, and he's the point is he's paying you know more than twice what a Jetta would be yeah. in the United States. Yeah, so exactly. So you still have a lot of economic distortions. You have a, a time with which there was never a real incentive to improve the logistics in Brazil. So it's still very hard to import and export just because of the conditions of port infrastructure and, and the rules and uh, the govern, governance associated with that. It's a tough place uh, f- for a lot of companies to do business. As a result, they have not benefited as much from globalization as, say, the fast risers of East Asia or the Pacific coast of the, of South America, uh, who, who chose to engage and chose uh, Asia as customers. Brazil has another drawback, as they're a long way from everybody. You tend to trade with it your neighbors. It is a very long way. As we know from, from the NAFTA, even the week before NAFTA, Canada was our biggest trading partner. Mexico was our third largest. So you tend to trade a lot with your neighbors. And Brazil is is, is geographically in a place where it doesn't have close neighbor, neighbors with whom to partner. So what do they want from us and what do we want from them? Well, there have been some very specific uh, trade problems that they're trying to overcome. I think the most prominent one is Brazilian beef. Now, Brazilian Brazil obviously has a wonderful beef industry uh, and produces uh, very high-quality products. But their inspection system uh, was a seat of corruption. And one of the things about food safety is we have a lot of imported food in the United States, okay? Many, many processed foods and, and fr- frankly, fresh fruits and vegetables are often imported to the United States. Yeah, and I don't know anybody who doesn't like themselves some fogo de chow. Oh, exactly. And, you know? and uh, it's, it's- Except it, my vegetarian son. It's a unique taste. They're, they're valued in the market. You have vegetarian sons? My middle son- who is a very good football player, is a vegetarian. And he's been a vegetarian since he was eight years old. Wow. Incredible. And Amazing. stuck with it. Yeah. Well, good for him. Kid weighs 183 pounds. He's of muscle. He's unbelievable. Glad to know it's working for him. Yeah. Well, in any case, uh, look, the U.S. food safety standards are very high. We put a lot of effort in, and, and both USDA and the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, do a great job at maintaining high levels of food safety in the United States uh, in partnership with the industries. When it comes to imported food, we need to we need to expect that other government agencies have similar standards. And sure. when when the agencies themselves who are responsible for safety regulation, particularly in food, in food products, uh, when those agencies fall down, uh, that breach of trust makes it very difficult. And so there's a, there's a need to recertify, and that's exactly what happened. To the, Brasilia had a lot of beef exports to the United States. They stopped because of problems in the agency. The, the ranchers didn't do anything wrong. It was, the, it was what happened in the agencies. Now we've got to find a way to rebuild trust. So that's probably a longer-term project, but it's one we can we So can they, they want to sell us their beef. Yes. We want what? What do we want from them? We want we – want, oh, well, I know one of the things we want are commercial satellites. We want to be able to launch – from them, correct? Yes, we have some specific asks like commercial satellites. Wheat is another ask. We would like to get wheat uh, sales and uh, exports to Brazil. We want to okay. Up. So we want to Bill, tell me about that. We want to sell them wheat, right? Because we—that's another great market for us. Yeah, there's some ironies there that that I, I thought were kind of amusing. Apparently, when Brazil went into the WTO, they promised a 750,000 ton wheat quota uh, to let let foreign wheat in, which they've never honored, and 
the Trump administration is under some pressure from uh, Midwestern uh, wheat state senators to get the Brazilians to to honor their commitment. Uh, apparently, the, the, what the Brazilians are suggesting is that they're prepared to do that if we'll make some concessions to them. So, so this this could be this, a is very, this is a very Chinese approach. You know, we promised to do this 20 years ago, uh, and now we'll promise to do it again. But you have to give us something again. But if President Trump gets this, this is a win for him. And this is a win he can it take would to the be Midwest. A, it would be a big deal in the Midwest. Um, so the politics of this Brazil visit are particularly important to the president of the United States. Uh, in political terms, he will tout the – of course, the wheat farmers are not the soybean farmers. In this, yeah. Usually, they're different. Uh, in this but case, it, but it's are. still a win. Yeah, right. It's still a win. And they'll be happy with it. Now, there's there Beautiful are a lot, wheat deal. It's well, well, best ever. Potentially, yes. yes. That's right. I like a beautiful wheat deal. Well, if you've been out to uh, the Midwest and seen wheat fields, they sure. have the beauty of their own. The wind rustles through. That's what I'm saying. Them, I mean, and they just and kind I, of, I see some, these waves of grain, right? I see some very good imagery coming for uh, POTUS. For those of you who don't know who POTUS is, that means President of the United States. We use that term here in Washington. <laughs> well, we're part of the in crowd. We're yeah. part of the elite, you know, that's ignoring. The rest of the country. Yeah, inside the swamp here. We are in. We are deep in the swamp. Yes, deep in our freezing cold studio inside the swamp. If you want to get out of the swamp, uh, you can go to Iowa and just drive. Take the take the annual uh, ragbury, the annual uh, bike ride across Iowa. There's it's a, a lot wonderful of thing Democrats to do. going to Iowa these days. It's um, yes. The place to be for a little while. It's the place to be for a while. Right. And that in New Hampshire, and boy, do they love it. Oh, you sure. Know, you get all this intention. For a while, and then the day after the caucus in the Iowa case, everybody leaves. Yes, yeah, and that's the end of that. I've covered the Iowa caucus in Des Moines, and uh, Iowa is very flat. It's a very flat. Place. No, it's not. If you if you do the bike ride, I've not done this, but okay. we've driven the route, and it's rolling hills. It really is. It's a beautiful uh, I state. Okay, I, no, well, I, I, I thought when it, you I get out of the yeah, get the out cities. towards Council Bluffs, you know, at, at, away from Des Moines. And you'll see a, a different kind it's just of rolling hills state. of mo- it's, all. It's all green. It's all corn. All now, do the farmers? The farmers. Now, beef is a big deal in Iowa, uh, and potatoes are a big pork. deal in Iowa. And, and pork. pork. I mean, uh, Senator Grassley himself raises pork. Yeah, and wh- how would he feel about a trade deal with Brazil? Well, there are some sensitivities. Okay, right. the, no, no question. Wheat exports would be good, uh, but Brazil, don't forget, is an agricultural powerhouse of their own. Yeah, they have interests in ethanol. They can produce ethanol very cheaply. Right, and currently uh, there are strict quotas on. They make it out of sugar. They, uh, we yes. make it out of corn, and it, their ethanol competes directly with Grassley's ethanol. Yes, and their ethanol is probably more efficient in terms of total production costs. So, what's the president going to say? Good luck, Chuck. I don't know. Probably it won't come up. My guess is. I don't think this is going to come up. My guess is ethanol is not going to come up. Cotton's not going to come up. And sugar's not going to come up. Those are the areas of of irritants in the past or sensitivities. So the president just wants to get the wheat deal done and call it a day. That's what I'd do if I were him. Well, they want us to support, uh, the Brazilians want us to support their entry into the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is sort of the club of developed countries. Right. Why, why, why wouldn't we let them in? Well, in general, what the United States has wanted to do is to make sure the countries are really uh, have a market-based economic system. Uh, and uh, because if you, lower the, if you lower the standard of the OECD, then you, 
letting a lot of countries that don't adhere to what are sort of strong rule of law, market-oriented principles. There was just a big debate about Colombia. Colombia wanted to get in, and the United States, is, I think, has ultimately supported that effort. Yes. But we insisted that they, that, that they, you have to, if you want to get in, it's a little bit like the WTO, you have to negotiate with all the current members. Uh, because all, they all have to agree to let you in. Uh, and so w- we went to the table with the Colombians and say, well, we're concerned about, uh, I think, your lumber policies, and we're concerned about some of your, uh, I think, labor policies yes. as well. And they had to, and these are commitments that they had made previously that we felt they were not honoring or implementing enough. So there's going to be a kind of a unpleasant negotiation about this. Basically, the Brazilians are going to have to become uh, much more of an open trade economy if they want to get in, I think. Scott, tell me about the technology. Tell me about the satellite issues that we wanted. Why do, why do we want access to their airspace? Because it's near the equator. Well, right. It is. Uh, most satellites are launched in these what's called the geosynchronous orbit. Right. Okay, and the geosynchronous orbit is, it may be getting a little crowded up there in space, but it is a very valuable uh, a piece of the sky, so to speak, because satellites then can track a very predictable uh, stationary pattern. So this is another great natural resource that Brazil has. Because of their location near the equator, uh, it is very efficient and, and highly predictable given uh, current avionics and current missile technology. They have a better shot at reaching uh, the geosynchronous orbit. The French launch from French Guiana, for example, which is just a little bit north of Brazil and as close to the equator as the French can get. All right. Well, speaking of the French, there's a big issue going on with the French right now. There's always a big issue going on with the French. There is always a big issue going on with the French. But let me ask you this. What is going on with the French right now? This is over a French digital tax. Can you guys explain this to me? We don't want anybody taxing our digital stuff. Yes. Can I tell a story first? Of course. Is that all right? Yeah. When I was on the Hill, this happened to me a number of times. I was working at the time for Senator Hines, and periodically we would launch a, a critical press release. Or God something bless that, Senator Hines. Uh, I miss him every day. We would la- launch at the European, then the European community. It was before the EU, and we, about some horrible thing that they had done. And there'd be total radio silence for about three weeks. And then someone from the British embassy would come in to see me. Uh, it was, uh, at the time, Christopher Mayer, who ultimately was their ambassador, but at the time was their economic minister. He would come in and he would explain in very clear, slow talk. He was talking to the colonials, you know, and you had to be very simple when you did this, why we were wrong and they were right. Uh, and then I would do 20 minutes on why we were right and they were wrong. And then at the end of this, Christopher would look at me and say, well, you know, it wasn't us. It was the French. And I always thought it was just a marvelous European tactic. Yeah. They would send in the relatively innocent to atone for the guilty. Right. And the guilty never showed up. Right. You know, it was, uh, we, we saw the Germans and the British a lot. We didn't see the French very often. We never saw the Italians. Uh, we saw the Nordics a lot. You know, so the, the, but on this question, the French are, are leading the, the, the guilty wave. What they have proposed doing, and they have not been able to get the EU to go along with them, they proposed doing it on an EU-wide basis, and there was resistance from at least four EU countries that have killed this off. They want to impose a tax on digital services. Digital services means advertising. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean using your platform uh, as, simply as a communication type of device, but uh, using it as a commercial device, selling things on it, advertising. That's what they want to tax. 
And one novel and controversial element is that they want to tax revenue and not profit, which is unusual. Most governors, when you're taxing corporations, most countries tax corporate profits. They don't tax you if you're not making any money. Uh, and this is uh, basically a, a turnover tax. It's a tax on income that comes in without regard to whether you're profitable or not. Uh, the way the tax is structured has irked the Americans because when you work your way through the definitions of who has to pay, uh, it's entirely foreign companies. Yeah, I mean, it, they estimate that this would affect around 30 tech giants, mostly from the United States. And the United States believes it would be highly discriminatory against us. Well, and they're right. It's the Amazon, Facebook, Google tax, uh, and among others. And the one European company that, that at least qualifies in terms of, of income would be Spotify. Um, but uh, they get an exemption because the, the proposal excludes fees, you know, membership fees. So that takes Is it them, just because they're Swedish and they got a great product they get off? I mean, what, you know? Uh, they're European. Look, yeah. And yeah. I, I think this is very clearly, clearly targeted at very competitive, very successful uh, American companies, uh, and the Europeans don't have any. Right. Look, there's, there are long-running skirmishes over how to, how to extract the right amount of taxes from the right taxpayers. And corporate taxation is one of the things, frankly, that is the most difficult for any economy to manage. Uh, basic corporations are quite difficult to pin down as where, the, where, the, where, their, where their entities are located and in what tax jurisdictions apply. And so there's been a long running. This is sort of the latest chapter in a long running uh, set of battles. It started off with the notion of U.S. headquartered companies putting their European operations in very low tax jurisdictions, such as Ireland. Okay, uh, and and, uh, and essentially avoiding a lot of corporate taxes that they would have faced had they located in France, say for instance, as the French uh, corporate tax rates are higher. So there was a and there was a a lot of of activity to lower corporate tax rates throughout Europe. So at this point, Sweden, which you think of as a social democracy and and high taxes, well, they're high taxes on individuals, but I think their corporate tax rate is below twenty or around twenty percent because that the effect was. Nobody wanted to be the, the, the tall poppy. Everyone lowered corporate tax rates. Then they got into a big fight called base erosion and profit shifting, where they accused companies sort of manipulating this and that their tax base was erosion. Then there was a project at the OECD, which you mentioned earlier, called uh, unfair tax competition, to which all the companies asked unfair to whom, <laughs> and we found out it was unfair to the French or the governments that were that were expecting to collect more revenue. This is a now the key point with the digital tax is it's a an extra tax. Digital services companies, like every corporation operating in the planet, is already taxed uh, at the corporate level. Uh, so they're, they're corporate on income their, taxes. On their, yeah, corporate profits. On their corporate earnings, or corporate profits. Okay, so this is a tax on top of that. And uh, it is, it's one of the, the unusual parts about the current uh, global economy is despite having many excellent firms based and headquartered in Europe that were European from the beginning, in this part of the economy, the digital economy, are mainly American national champions. They're the American headquartered companies. And there, there doesn't seem to be an effective mirror of that in, in the European uh, economic order. There's two sins being committed here. First, it's easy money, and they're going after the easy money. It's large, visible. These guys make a lot of money. You know, Amazon's doing rather well. So that's, you know, if, and if you're short of funds, that's where you look. The second frustrates me because we've talked about this before. When you're competing, there's two ways to win. You know, you, you run faster, you trip the other guy. This is tripping the other guy. You know, they don't have 
There's no European Amazon. There's no European Facebook. Right. There's no European Google. So their response to that is, let's stick it to them. That's not going to help them create competitors. So, so how would we retaliate? It's not like we can, you know, text or croissants. Ah. I mean, like, what are we going to, you know, what are we going to do? We have tools. The most obscure, which has never been used, is um, Section 891 of the Internal Revenue Code, uh-huh. which allows uh, the United States to assess additional taxes on anybody that has done that to us. Right. Uh, we've never done that, but it's, it's out there. We could also uh, we could take them to the WTO on right. the grounds that this is a discriminatory tax. Right. I think that's I think is. that's probably a winner. Yeah, because the the measure of whether you're discriminating is not based on on what you say about it. Right. Because of course they say it's not discriminatory. It's based on the effect. And if you can show that you know ninety eight percent of the people that are paying, uh, you know, are not European, that tells you something about this. We could do that. The thing that, thanks to China, three hundred one is back in vogue. You know, the the uh, statute that allows the president to go after unreasonable, discriminatory, or unjustifiable actions. This would probably qualify under that. Uh, the good news is there's actually a better way to do all this, uh, and that's going back to what we were saying before. Go back to the OECD. What the OEC does uh, all the time, despite in addition to producing mountains of data that you know people use, is they produce best practices. They produce principles of how to behave well. Uh, they've got you know they've done an OECD thing on bribery and, and corruption against it, not how to do it, but how governments should should oppose it. And they produced a lot of principles on sound tax policy and neutral tax policy. And what the G20 has uh, done in the past is task the OECD with coming up with principles and guidelines to prevent the kind of games that, we, that Scott was just talking about, the base shifting, uh, profit shifting, and, 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 and shifting your, your assets around in, in order to take advantage of low taxation. And most of the countries in Europe and the United States have said on this issue, let the OECD come up with a proper system of digital taxation that is fair and neutral to everybody. The problem with the French is they don't want to wait for that. They want to go right now. That's going to take a couple of years. Well, I mean, this is like if, let's say, for instance, the French film industry was as big as Hollywood, and we decided out of the blue, we're going to slap a tax on the French film industry to punish them. Isn't that sort of what this is analogous to? Yes, pretty close. But it also represents, you know, a very commonly used tax tactic, which was best articulated by Senator Russell Long. Oh, this is my favorite one. Don't tax me. Don't tax thee. Tax the fellow behind that tree. Yeah. Okay. And so shifting that burden of taxation is as old as taxes themselves as a practice. And everybody tries it. And uh, it, it discrimination really doesn't pay off in the long run, but you can still try. The French. They're crafty. Very crafty. They do make a good croissant, though. And cheese. Can't forget the cheese. And les omelettes. What's that? Omelette. Oh. I mean, there's with you. so many things. I mean, Paris is a wonderful place, I have to say. My son and daughter-in-law just got back from there, from a week there. Did they have a good time? Uh, they say so. We're seeing them over the weekend to look at pictures. Excellent. So I can give you a report next time. We'll look forward to hearing about that. Meanwhile, there's another European country very close to France that's having some trouble. Geographically, but not culturally. Yes, yeah, it's across the channel, <laughs> right. but it's a long way. Right. Under, right. under the, we've got some issues with Brexit going on. How is Brexit and its current situation, meaning 
that it's completely in disarray. Theresa May's government is in disarray as they seek to figure out whether they're going to leave or not. Uh, and the chaos continues. How is this affecting trade? <laughs> the best analogy we, we, we can't resist is like, go ahead, the black well, knight and Monty Python. Python. <laughs> No, this this actually. Uh, I, I think uh, there was a Dutch. Man. There was a Dutch elected official, a parliamentarian, who 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 described. It was the prime uh, minister. Prime, oh, Mark Rutte, Dutch, yeah. Well, yeah, Dutch prime minister. So sorry, who, who described uh, Theresa May's struggle with the parliament uh, as similar to the Black Knight and Monty Python and the Holy Grail, oh. uh, which, having lost you know both arms, says it's mere flesh wound. Yeah, uh, you know, right. come back and fight. You know, oh, but, huh. but really, in fairness to, to to Prime Minister May, she was with the Remain camp. All right, and when yeah. the referendum went to leave she chose the she was chosen for the leadership role and remained the leader despite her her misgivings for that side of the referendum and so she has she has done an, a, a mighty job of trying to hold together the the british interests in negotiations with the europeans the problem is she wound up with a negotiation with by ending the negotiations with the europeans at a point where nobody in britain liked the deal and europe basically said this is it is all you get, all right, for whatever set of reasons. And Theresa May has now brought the, her deal to Parliament twice and basically had it rejected twice, in a, you know, long story short. She, uh, she thought about doing it the third time, and the British uh, House of Commons Speaker, which is not like our Speaker of the House exactly, but it's a pretty important role, basically said, no, 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 we're not going to do this a third time. It is an important role. I discovered that it can be a dangerous one. There were seven Speakers of the House who've been beheaded. Uh, although over the years, although the last one is 1535. Okay, so, so I, it was a recent. I, I, but I don't think he needs to worry about It's not a about career about aspiration then of, <laughs> but of any of the trade guys. He cited, yeah. the pre- he cited a precedent from 1604. That's impressive. But it's, and it, but it's, it's actually a, a fairly fundamental parliamentary rule. I mean, everybody thinks that he's, he's trying to skew the results here. But the, the parliamentary rule is simple, which is that uh, once an issue has been debated and voted on, it can't be considered again in the same session. I got to tell you, I love watching their parliament in action. They just it's, yell at each it's, other. It's raucous. Yeah, yeah it's, it's 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 sort of like our professional wrestling, but, but more civilized. You, you know, you know the the design of the of the chamber of the House of Commons. Yeah, you know why it's set up. Well, it's it, the sides are are facing each other. Yeah, unlike ours, which is in a sort of a semicircle. Right. Okay. The sides face each other, but the distance between those front rows on both sides is two drawn swords plus one foot. Yeah. Well, and also I mean, that's that's know, the extent of of conflict that sure, goes on. Sure. Well, they don't have guns. Right. You know, we all have guns in America, and you used to be able to carry your gun into into the capital in the United States. So, like, I mean, we have to not be in each other's you know line of sight, right? But they don't carry their swords. They don't carry Except swords for the, anymore uh, either. The, I guess the guy that brings the mace in, I think, yes. he has a sword. Anyway, to get back to your question, how does it affect trade? The sad news for everybody is it's already affecting trade because people are hedging. Uh, you know, they don't know what's going to happen, and so they're covering all the different bets by moving, and they're not. They're not exactly leaving London, but they're partly leaving London. And if you talk to financial institutions, you know, there are new centers developing in Dublin uh, and Rotterdam and Frankfurt. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's that's where the growth is. The growth is not in London. People are not abandoning the country, but they're very nervous because also because the government has put out very little guidance about what's going to happen on 
departure day, which is now, you know, if they stick with no deal. Friday be, of next week. Yeah, it'll yeah. be a week from Friday. So what happens if your food, if you're a, a you know, a restaurant owner and, you know, and you're bringing um, cheese uh, over, uh, wine and cheese over from France, uh, which right now is, there's no barrier, no inspection, nothing at all. And all of a sudden on uh, the day after March 29th, it's not duty-free anymore, maybe, depends on what the British do, and it's subject to inspection. But they haven't set up any inspection network. They haven't set up any rules. So people that are in businesses that involve getting stuff every day are very, very nervous. People in the financial markets are very, very nervous and are afraid yeah. of big downturn. Exactly. So then I think that the— Un grand pro- problème uh, avec les fromages. Big problem with and cheese. I, big, big I problem think cheese is cheese. maybe the least of their worries at the moment. But if you look at it, the most likely uh, immediate outcome is a delay, that the March 29th date will be yes. will be fudged off into the future, and they'll pick some other leave date to keep working on this and to keep muddling through. But the fact is, Bill's point about uncertainty remains, and nobody really knows what the final status of this will be. What do you do with – how do you – manage a hard border in between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, the, this whole backstop issue has got is fraught with problems. And uh, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a real muddle that is I think is going to take elected officials really stepping up in a way they haven't so far. One possibility that's occurred to me is if if she gets an extension, which I think she probably will now. She just keeps suffering flesh wounds. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, well, you know, so the arms and legs an, are already gone. There's gonna Come be back a- here. Come back here now. <laughs> but I can – one of the things that I can actually see is a series of perpetual extensions. Yeah. You know, the EU will give them three or four months, and then she'll come back then because they still can't solve the problem, and they'll want another one. And eventually somebody will figure out, well, maybe this is what is going to happen. Maybe they're just going to stay in by default. Uh, the, the next, the first one, however, is crucial. Yes. Because if they stay in more than, I guess, three months, they have to uh, run candidates in the, in the European Parliament election. Uh, which is the last week in May or the third week in May, I yes. guess it is. Right. Uh, and uh, there's been a legal opinion issued in, in Europe that says if the UK remains in the EU but does not send anybody to the parliament, it casts doubt on the legal the legality of the, of the European parliament at that point. Uh, and so the, the British have to decide if they want to run anybody and fill the seats. Meanwhile, all their seats have been reallocated to other countries. So it's going to uh, – or most of them have been reallocated to other countries. and Some have just been eliminated. This really does harken – It's a mess. This, this harkens back to their medieval torturous past. I mean this is just brutal for people in Great Britain right now. Well, the but lights are still on. Look, the lights are yeah, still on. But, the I mean, the it's, trains it, still run. It's, it's, it's not bar- quite as bad as a hundred years' war yeah, when yeah. they were going over to Gascony. No, but it's Navarre as, and, it's uh, as bad as our government and pillaging. It's, it's as bad or worse as our government shutting down for you know period of time. It's bad. It will be if there's a hard Brexit for sure. The hard out will be very difficult for both the UK and for Europe. That's a, it'll be a very disruptive event. It's not insurmountable. It's not. It's not all-out war, but it's not what you, not what anybody planned for. To our listeners, next week the trade guys will be on hiatus. Some of us will be on spring break. Some of us will just be here in the office working. 
In any case, we'll catch you all the following week right here on The Trade Guys. If you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.